American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Start again? Yep. Welcome to another episode of American, American Timelines. Timelines. I'm Amy and that's Joe. And we're on vacation. We are. We're on location. On location to around the, the nation. the lake. Yes, we are recording this episode from a cabin in the backwoods, Michigan. I can see a lake, but okay. so the audio might not be good. But we're going we're gonna to throw this up together. But we are so, dedicated. We are going to talk about 1953. Nothing is going to stop us from jumping into February of 1953. We're going to continue. Even vacation. So what's the first item up for bid? So what I have is something about the youngest soldier yeah. in the Korean War. Okay. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. The youngest soldier in the Korean War was Master Sergeant Gilbert Zamora, mm -hmm. he, who ended up being able to enlist at age 13. That's like Audrey's because, age almost. Because he was, that's our daughter. He was already six foot two and weighed 195 pounds. He's a big boy. Yeah. And so he was able, unless he retired in 1988. Yeah. Uh, but this is 1953. Um, he was the youngest soldier in the army since the Civil War, which, you know, the Civil War. Yeah. Was there was like two-year-olds yeah. with bayonets. Yeah. Uh, Zamora was the last member of the 17th Infantry Regiment who fought in Korea and was still active, in active service. Uh it was the historic 17th a unit first organized in the war of 1812 that marched in parade in parade formation to honor him uh i think that's a caption of a picture or something sorry i shouldn't have said that anyway okay. in korea zamora fought at old baldy alligator jaws and pork chop hill he was shot and wounded in the a Shao Valley in Vietnam. I thought you were going to say in the ass. No, he had 35 years active duty in the A. Yeah, he he said he was able to enlist at 13 because he was so big by the eighth grade. And he said, he was quoted to say, one day I went to the headquarters of the 40th Infantry, Infantry Division of the California National Guard in Glendale and said I wanted to join the Army. When they asked my age, I told them 17. Oh. I was given an application form and had, had a friend forge my parents' signatures and they accepted me. But... After the National Guard unit was activated and was about to be sent to the Korean battlefront, Zamora's parents wrote a letter to the Army revealing his true age. He was then 14 and was given an honorary discharge after a 13-month of service. So, wow. So he went back to school, but he re-enlisted as soon as he turned 17. He really wanted to be in the Army. Yeah, time enough. Yeah, he was like the Captain Steve Rogers, like Captain yeah. America. Like he's a yeah. little, little baby kid that wanted to do it really bad. Okay. Um, but so he ended up getting in there. Right. And then February 5th, 1953, was the Emmy Awards, the fifth. Oh. Fifth Emmy Awards. Let me guess. Um, Let's see. 1953. Howdy Doody, maybe, had an Emmy. There's some turbulence. Yeah, what is going on? What sound does. Okay, I'll just try to sit still, really yeah, still. Hold them. Hold them. Yeah, okay. Okay. You want to guess what? I said, "Howdy, Duty." Maybe had an mm, Emmy. I love Lucy. I love Lucy. The ho the ceremonies were hosted by Art Linkletter. Oh right. I love Lucy. Thomas Mitchell and Helen Hayes were the big winners. Helen Hayes. Remember her? Sort of. And then February sixteenth. Do you remember me talking in a uh, previous episode about Ted Williams, what was baseball it? player? 
Well, what was his? Well, he's frozen, but that wasn't the big thing. The big thing was that he, well, I guess that was a big thing, but yeah. he, he joined the uh, Air Force or whatever and was a big fighter. Like he kept, he has all these records in Major League Baseball, but he kept leaving baseball to fight in wars and stuff and he still holds a bunch of records so imagine wow. what his records were if he didn't yeah but on february 16 1953 he safely crash landed crash landed a damaged panther jet Ooh. and was later awarded the air medal okay um so according to the inside pitch series written by craig muter mm-hmm. uh on the hall of fame baseball hall of fame website uh he, yeah, he was in the Marine Corps, I guess, not the Air Force. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I was wrong there. So on February 19th, he crash landed his Navy F-9F Panther jet following a mission in Korea. The plane was damaged by anti-aircraft fire, but Williams survived thanks to piloting skills honed almost a decade earlier during World War II, okay. which he fought then, too. So he he um, he was assigned, remember, he was assigned the same squadron as John Glenn. Okay. So we talked about that. He served with John Glenn. Yeah. Um, uh, and John Glenn was quoted to say, Ted flew as my wingman about half the missions he flew in Korea. He told MajorLeagueBaseball.com. During his crash, he was on fire and had to belly land the plane back in. He slid it in on the belly. He came up the runway about 1,500 feet before he was able to jump out and run off the wingtip. Wow. You want to switch mics? There you go. Since you have trouble holding still. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> and then... Uh, John Glenn said, much as I appreciate baseball, Ted, to me, will always be a Marine fighter pilot. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Williams was discharged from the Marines on July 28, 1953. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he played seven more full seasons, and he was awesome. It's just an all-American man. Unbelievable, yeah. He said, uh, Ted Williams said, I liked flying. It was the second best thing that ever happened to me. If I hadn't had baseball to come back to, I might have gone on, to, gone on as a Marine pilot. Mm. Yeah, so there you go. There we go. crash landed. I mean, it's like a... Yeah, that's crazy. Um, he said, Ted Williams said he had holes all over the plane. He was riding on all the prayers people say for me because I was awfully lucky. My plane was burning like hell when I crash landed. Everybody around here now is calling me lucky. Anyway, I'm missing you. He wrote actually in a love, they found love letters that he wrote to some mistress he had. Oh, and wow. And his wife. And he said, of course that. he was. So, yeah. so there's a whole book of like his love letters that was okay. published later. Or they were actually auctioned off, I think, in 2017 or something. So there's all these love letters between him and his Okay. One of his ladies he was cheating on his wife with, or his girlfriend, or whatever. You know, dudes get around. And then on February 19th, yep. Georgia approves the U.S. On February 19th, Georgia approves the U.S. first literature censorship board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they started censoring literature. History uh, just repeats. It repeats and repeats and repeats, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I looked up this a little bit, and one of the things they censored, and they, they pressed charges against author or whatever for writing, like, a porno comic. Uh, so, yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure what that was. So maybe, sometimes, maybe it's justified. I don't know. And then on February 20th, 1953, the U.S. Court of Appeals ruled that organized baseball is a sport and not a business, affirming the 25-year-old Supreme Court ruling. Uh, so the, the reason this was is that it, it effectively dismissed an antitrust suit of Jack Corbett and former Brooklyn Dodgers minor leader Walter Kowalski. Oh, so they were trying to get out of, around antitrust laws? Yeah, they were. the the Corbett was the owner of the El Paso Texans, and he based this lawsuit on the belief that he lost money when Major League Baseball prohibited 
pro- prohibited prohibited him from signing several players uh-huh. who were suspended for participation in the Mexican League. Mm-hmm. His his general principle of the suit was uh, on antitrust and restraint of trade laws. Their lawyer in these cases is Frederick Johnson, who also represents player Danny Gardella in a suit against Major League. So basically, it was just saying like you, you know, you're using all the players. You know, mm-hmm. I should be able to have players or whatever. Okay. And then February 20th, August, a Bush buys the St. Louis Cardinals Major League Baseball Club from Fred Sy Sy from for $3.75 million and pledged not to move the team from St. Louis, Missouri. Mm, Augie yeah, Bush. The Bush. Anheuser Bush. Augie Bush. Yep. Augie Bush Sr. Yes. Yes. You're well aware of them because you're from St. Louis. That's right. And you had some run-ins with the Augie well, Bush. Well, yeah. we won't talk about we that. We won't talk about those. February 21st was the longest collegiate basketball game. Six overtimes. Niagara beats Seattle. Why so much sports? 88 to 81. This it's is just the a- third sports story. Did you... Do you know that? You know what? I will stop with the sports. But six overtimes. Okay. That's a lot. I know. And then February 26th-ish, yeah. uh, the most reverend bishop, Fulton J. Sheen, auxiliary bishop of New York, was an unassuming cleric who offered inspiration and instruction via his radio show. Yeah. And then on a regular TV spot in the 1950s. From a studio mock-up of a study complete with Blackboard, he broadcast weekly lessons in life and morality on a show called Life is Worth Living. Okay. A common subject subject of Bishop Sheen's talks were the evils of communism. Of course. So, and one of his shows on this topic in this area, this on this one of these days around here, on February twenty sixth, this one of the shows on one of the shows, the topic in early nineteen fifty three was long remembered because of an eerie coincidence. On that occasion, Bishop Sheen gave a dramatic reading of the burial scene from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar with the names of prominent Soviet leaders. Stalin, Beria, Melenkov, and Vashinsky substituted for those of Caesar, Cassius, Mark, Anthony, and Brutus. Mm. They did this as like a demonstration thing. Mm-hmm. From the bishop's lips came the pronouncement, Stalin must one day meet his judgment. And then Stalin suffered a stroke a few days later and was dead within the week. Coincidence? Oh, yes. Maybe. Coincidence. <laughs> Maybe not. You don't think he has the power to <laughs> no, kill Stalin? No, I don't think he has the power to kill Stalin. And then on February 28, 1953, right before we get to your thing. Yeah. Uh, there was a world-changing event. Francis Crick and James D. Watson discovered the helical structure of DNA. Oh. Helical? 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 In 1953, biologist helical, James... Helical, I think. Helical? Because helix. Helix, yes, right. Helix. I knew I was saying it wrong. Biologist James D. Watson and Francis Crick published Molecular Structure of Nucleic Acids, Structure for Deoxybro... Deox... Just, just tell me on your own words. nucleic acid. Because this isn't going to go well. a little more than a drawing and some accompanying texts. But they discovered the structure, basically the structure of DNA. Wow. And they introduced yeah. an idea called directed panspermia, which suggested Earth. They also suggested Earth was seeded by aliens. Whoa. Yes. That was our son that piping in. That was our son in, who was sick of recording podcasts during a vacation. And then that brings us to Amy's story. Okay, so I'm going to talk about John... Balaban, who is oh. also known as the Romanian Maniac. The Romanian Maniac? Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, in this corner, the Romanian Maniac, John Balaban. This, so this is not American, Oh, but they can't always be American. Yeah, we originally wanted to be all American timelines, but now we are sometimes other timelines. And that's just the way it is. Yeah, so deal with it, he everybody. was a Romanian serial killer. He murdered at least five people in France and Australia including his wife, her mother, and her son. Yes, and those of you mad, hey, we're doing this from vacation, so 
get off our asses. So he was born in Romania in 1924. Okay. He was a loner, and he fell into raging fits when he was rejected. Wow, a loner and a rebel, but when he was rejected by a lady? So he was like an incel. Right. So he um, decided to escape from his home country and travel towards France, and he arrived there as a 17-year-old on October in 1941. In February of 1948, the 24-year-old Balaban murdered Hungarian woman Rua Kvass in Paris. He then moved to Australia on July 11th, 1951, working at various jobs before settling to work as an industrial chemist. So he was not a dumb person. Yeah, he must have been smart. In September 1952, he married a 30-year-old woman named Thelma Joyce Cadd in Adelaide. And she lived with her six-year-old son, Philip, and her 66-year-old mother, Susan Auckland, at a place called the Sunshine Cafe. So they lived in a small flat above the cafe. Okay. And they ran the cafe. So he did this after he murdered somebody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nobody knows that he murdered anybody. So this lady doesn't know that he's a murderer. She's not like, oh, I like you, murderer guy. So on December 5th, 1952. Oh, that's the same day that the London Fog, the Great London Fog. That's right. We talked about. Yes. Yeah, that same day. Yes. Um, 29-year-old Yugoslav migrant Zora Kusik was murdered at her shack in North Parade, Torrensville. Oh, no. Her mutilated body was found by a resident of a nearby boarding house. Oh, boy. Kusik had her head nearly severed with a pocket knife, which was found in a bloodstained dish of water near the bed. She had her throat slashed from ear to ear, had been disemboweled. And had a reported 81 knife wounds to her upper body and torso. 85 disemboweled. Now, doesn't this mean, doesn't usually 85 knife wounds mean it's personal and you know the person? That's a a theory. Hardened police officers referred to the scene as resembling an abattoir. You know what an abattoir is? Wait, hardened police officers described the scene as an abattoir. Why were the police officers hardened? Because they'd seen a lot of stuff in their lives. But they couldn't take this. This was so bloody. Uh, is what I'm trying to they say. They described it as a what? An abattoir. I don't know That's what an a, abattoir is. like a slaughterhouse oh. in Australia. I know what a menage a trois is. After a full examination of Zora's body, it became evident that her killer had removed parts of her body and taken them with him. Oh my gosh, this is gross. A, a butcher's knife, later confirmed to be the murder weapon, laid next to her naked body, wiped clean of prints. So police believed she had met her murderer at a hotel or a wine bar before taking him to her hut. And so they investigated every hotel in Torrenceville. Okay. For the hotel bars. Yeah, just to see. Figure out where they were. Who was there, yeah. Both the South Australian and the immigrant community, who were appalled by how severe this crime was, provided every little bit of evidence they had in order to solve it. A taxi driver said... He had driven the woman and a man resembling Balaban on that very night. Okay. So Balaban was arrested and questioned for five hours. Oh, yeah. During questioning, he lied to authorities about his whereabouts on that night. Fucking liar, man. But then they had to release him later because they they had a lack of evidence. Okay. So they had a committal hearing. Because the, the weapon didn't have any fingerprints. Yeah. And at the committal hearing, the only, the witnesses were all either like, Sex workers or people that normally day drink. People that, you know, <laughs> and so. those people are deemed usually untrustworthy. That's exactly so, right. So when they first interview, what are you? I am a bar fly. That's right. Exactly. Uh, sorry, this is not. Uh, exactly. Visible. Yes. The so they didn't. The, the uh, jury. I love day drinking, by the way. I'm about to do some day drinking because I'm on vacation. I know. The jury didn't think they were reliable witnesses because of those things. All right. So um, Balaban, on the other hand 
was this married professional in the scientific field and a responsible family man. Okay. His wife and mother-in-law were hardworking, well-respected women who ran the Sunshine Cafe. Okay. He convinced the court that his biggest crime was hiding a bit of drinking problem from his wife and stepson, Thelma and Philip. Yeah. So no charges were laid after the hearing. Now you can pass everything off as a drinking problem. The local sex workers decided to stay off the streets for a time, and the local newspapers were screaming about the Jack the Ripper Slayer who was bound to strike the city again at any time. The local sex workers sounds like a like a fun team name, like the local sex workers. Local sex yeah. workers. Yeah, I, every time I go to a town, I, was, I always ask, where's the local sex workers? All right, so, so no, now sorry. he returns to his family okay. in February 1953. I mean, this is a and real- this is a real, real brutal thing. This yes. So the domestic situation did not improve for him, and he became unhappy with his marriage. On Saturday, April 11th, 1953. Oh, the same day that Guy Verhofstadt was born, the former prime minister, minister of Belgium. He was born that, that, that day. Okay. He left the flat to go drinking. While out, he became very drunk. Meanwhile, Guy Verhofstadt is being nursed by his mother. Mm-hmm. Newborn baby. And he attacked several people with an iron bar, Ooh. including one lady at a public toilet. Oh, and it resulted in the hospitalization of a person due to head injuries. Oh, so gosh. he got really drunk and he started chasing people with around with, with metal bar. Following the violent oh, drinking spree, Balaban returned home and grabbed a claw hammer. Oh, no. He first turned can do some damage. towards his wife, Thelma, who was sleeping in the flat's main bedroom, and he killed her. Oh, then he moved on to the smaller bedroom where Philip and Auckland were, no, brutally attacking and critically children. injuring them as well. Finally, I'm not a fan of children death. Balaban attacked 24-year-old Verna, Ma Verna Maney, a waitress who lived in a sleepout at the balcony. I think it was like a sleeping porch. Okay. Um, and he Sleepout. Yeah, he um, attacked her, but the, but but Verna tried to fight back. She broke the room's lamps and smeared all the walls with blood in the process. Oh, no. in, an in, in an attempt to save her own life, yeah. she threw herself off the first story window Holy and landed shit. on the pavement and, fall and fell unconscious. Oh, my gosh. Frightened by all the screaming that yeah. neighbors quickly called the police, oh, yeah. who promptly arrived and saw her, Verna, lying on the pavement. Yeah. She, Ver, not Verna, Vera, sorry. Oh, I thought it was Verna. You said Verna. It says Verna there, and then it says... I think it is Verna. Okay. Because I have different sources, and one of them I prefer was Verna. not a very good source. Okay. Verna told police at the Bad scene... Source. Bad source. ...that she had thrown herself out of the window after a life-and-death struggle with John Balaban. She knew his name? Yeah. Oh, good. Because she was she is living there. You're going to catch him now. So Verna had awoken with a man on top of her. He was covered in blood and attacking her with a claw hammer, oh. is what she had said. The 24-year-old waitress fought him off and jumped two stories to the pavement below where she lay, and she, and she had sustained oh, no. several injuries to the head in the attack. Oh. So police surrounded a blood-stained John Balaban, who was yeah. hiding in an alley behind the cafe, Yeah. so that he surrenders. Oh, then man. they go into the home. And in the master bedroom, they found Thelma, they found John's Thelma, wife, yeah. dead in her bed. Oh. She had been beaten in the head so badly, she no oh. longer had a face. Oh, God. I know. <laughs> in the room next door, they found her mother, Mrs. Susan Auckland, barely clinging to life with severe head injuries. Oh, man. In the room adjacent was the badly beaten body of Philip Children, Auckland, Thelma's man. son, and John's stepson on the floor next to his little single bed. He, too, was barely alive. Sadly, within hours of arriving at the hospital, both Susan and Philip were dead from their injuries. Verna was the only survivor of the Sunshine Cafe murder spree. Never murder people. So they Never arrested good. Balaban, and on May 5th, he was charged with the death of his wife, and he was recharged with Kusick's murder. 
Okay. So they officially they that one out. Yeah. charged him. Char- okay. In uh, an unwritten statement, he confessed fully to the crimes and really? claimed that his family deserved to die because his wife had acted like a prostitute, quote unquote, and he was very much against them. Aside from that, he also admitted to strangling Kusick in Torrensville because she was a quote unquote prostitute, along with strangling Quas in Paris before migrating to Australia. The court quickly sentenced him to death for Kusick's murder and a decision which he unsuccessfully tried to appeal on the grounds of insanity before the full court of Australia. And John Balaban was eventually hanged at the Adelaide Gaul. I never know how to say Gaul. G-A-O-L. Gaul? Gaul? I don't Something know. Something like that. You have to ask the Scottish fellows. On August 26, 1953, with only a few guards present at his execution. Wait, he was hanged the same day that on the an episode of Craft Television Theater. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was called The Blues for Joey Minotti. A sad but talented honky-tonk piano player reflects his mood in his music, written by Rod Serling. That yes. on TV that same day? Wow. And that's the story of Romanian serial killer John Balaban. That was a gross one. It is. I bet that's like a... A rarely nobody known knows one, about right? it. I didn't know about it. That's a new one for people, and it was real gross. New one. That was real gross. So you kept it real sick and awful and gross, and I, I really did. wanted to vomit the whole time because this is a short episode. So yeah. I didn't want to like shortchange our listeners. Yeah. So they, you know, the listeners will look and they'll see. Boy, there's a short episode just slapped together while they're on vacation in a cabin. I mean, we are standing in a cabin that has one outlet. We have a hundred things plugged into this outlet to make this episode for you. And Amy kept it real gross. That's right. Real awful, real bloody and gory. And you guys like it. And I am going to puke. Yeah. I almost feel like we can measure our listener satisfaction with how much I want to vomit. I think, I think it's a good idea. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. So this is a good episode. All right. This has been a good episode. It's been short, but you know, give us a chance. It's better than, on us. better than a sharp stick in the eye. Yeah, it's better than nothing. We want to keep you guys engaged. We love you, and we're on vacation. I'm I'm not even wearing a shirt. Well, it's nothing new. No, that isn't anything new. All right. It's time to get out of here, Chuck Berry. We love you guys. Thank you love for you. listening. Give us a subscribe. like, a subscribe, and a five stars. And five stars. And, and eight stars. Give us more stars. Five stars. Take your grandparents' iPhones and give us five stars. Give us five stars. We love you. Reach out to us on Twitter, and we'll give you a shout-out. At History for Jerks. Bye. Bye. Truman Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time by their music.